Well, things seem to be going pretty well the first half of this parable. If you consider yourself to be even a halfway caring and compassionate person, you're, you're feeling okay here for that first part. But then by the end, if you're like me at least, you're left with a, a slightly uneasy feeling in the gut. Right, Because according to this parable that we have just read, Jesus can tell the true nature of those gathered before the throne. As easy as a shepherd, one who spends all day and all night with his or her flock, a shepherd can tell the difference between a sheep and a goat. This parable called to mind for me a visit a few years back on one of our evacuations, that time to North Georgia, when we uh, stopped by uh, Goats on the Roof in Tiger, Georgia. Anyone been to Goats on the Roof? It's quite the attraction, literally goats walking on a roof. I was ready to go about the second I stepped foot out of the car, but we spent maybe 15 minutes there. And I'll tell you, the one takeaway I had from that experience, as someone who hasn't spent that much time with sheep either, my one takeaway was that it ain't hard to tell the difference between a goat and a sheep. Right? This parable... It should leave us feeling a little vulnerable. Well, you know, God, that one time when I, I, I helped, you know. Oh, but, but I hope God doesn't really know about that other thing. Right? This is a parable that kind of leaves us feeling naked. Maybe even a little frightened, which is a little ironic in itself. When you consider the likelihood that the original author of Matthew's gospel likely included this parable with the intent of it being a word of consolation to those earliest followers of Jesus Christ. Remember that Matthew's gospel is written decades after Jesus' life and death and resurrection likely sometime between 70 and 90 CE. It's a time when when there are no grand cathedrals dotting the landscape. There are no state-sanctioned Christian holidays. There's no Rockefeller Center Christmas tree. Right, Those earliest followers of the way, they are people who are at the margins. They, the audience that Matthew is writing to in his gospel, they are the ones who are poor. They are the ones who are hungry, who are thirsty. They are the ones who are the strangers, the prisoners, the persecuted. As one commentator puts it, Matthew is writing from the perspective of a down and out person. He's writing from the perspective of a a member of this group that was oppressed and dishonored because of their commitment to Jesus Christ. And so these words that for us might feel a little uneasy, they were meant to be uplifting to those earliest Christians. Because they said to them, no matter what hardship you face in your lifetime, 
Your honor will be recognized. Your honor will be made known at the final judgment. But that's not us, is it? Or at least I dare say most of us. By the standards of the world, we, all of us, we are people of power. We are people of privilege. We are people of strength and wealth and status. Right In normal times, the biggest sacrifice that you or me are often asked to make in order to come to church is perhaps having to deal with a little longer line at brunch after worship. We don't know the hardship. We don't know what it feels like to be at the margins in the way that that original audience hearing and listening to this story would have. So what does this parable mean for us? Right? Is that vulnerable feeling trying to tell us something? Are we condemned to eternity as goats on a roof? There's a wonderful story that Tom Long tells in his book, Whispering the Lyrics. It's the story of a, a dessert and drama night that a church hosted one December in their fellowship hall. The selected performance that year was the classic Dickens piece, A Christmas Carol. They transformed the social hall to resemble the streets of 19th century London. The audience shuffled in, mostly members of the congregation, and they were all slightly amused when they were handed the programs and saw that the lead in this performance, Ebenezer Scrooge, was being played by one of the least Scrooge-like people in their entire church, a generous, caring, gentle, kind man, the chair of the church board, and yet they were impressed when things began because he played that role with such energy and, and such skill. He growled his way through the opening scenes, ringing out every bahumbug. He had that ill will about him and then that, that startling self-recognition as he was encountered by the series of Christmas ghosts. The final scene, you'll recall in A Christmas Carol, calls for Scrooge to throw open the windows of his bedroom and cry out to the streets below, Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas. And then, seeking to follow up on his newfound Christmas cheer and to spread that cheer through gifts to all of London's needy children, he was to call upon an urchin passing by to look out his window in the performance and see an imaginary boy down there on the streets and cry out, Hey, boy, you there! Boy, come up here! I've got something wonderful for you to do. Now, in the play itself, Scrooge, of course, was calling out to an imaginary boy down there on the stage. But something beautiful and unexpected happened that night. 
When the radiant Scrooge beckoned from the window, come up here, boy, I've got something wonderful for you to do. A little six-year-old boy out there in the audience, seated with his family who were members of the church, spontaneously rose from his chair in response to this jubilant and generous call and walked right up onto stage, ready to do something wonderful. Now the audience held their breath, and the actor up there in his perch playing Scrooge blinked in disbelief what to do. And then that person of faith behind the veneer of Scrooge took charge. Bounding down from his window perch, Tom Long remembers, he strode across the stage and cheerily embraced the waiting boy. Yes, indeed, he said. Yes, indeed, his voice full of blessing. You are the very one I had in mind. And then gently he led the boy back to his seat in the audience and returned to the stage and finished the play. You know, it's so interesting having this passage, this parable, on the Sunday after we have finished our eight-week series on the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes, after all, from way back at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, the beginning of Jesus' ministry there in chapter 5, the Beatitudes are all about living, right? They're about finding blessing and living. They're about the work of Christian discipleship, what it looks like. And now here, in our reading today, here near the end of the gospel, it seems that the good shepherd wants to know how we did. Did we stay there in our seats or did we leap up onto stage? God's judgment, Jesus seems to be saying, it has less to do with the specific works, right? There's Jesus listing, you visited me in prison, you clothed me when I was naked, and the people's response, both the righteous and the unrighteous, are, Lord, when did we do those things? No one's been keeping a list of the specific works. No, God's judgment, Jesus seems to be saying, is rooted more in looking for lives that are awash in mercy. Looking for hearts that spontaneously rise to do something wonderful. To feed the hungry, to give drink to the thirsty, to welcome the stranger, to clothe the naked, to care for the sick, to live sacrificially. Judgment is looking for lives that rise to do something wonderful, not because we expect something in return, but solely because God in Jesus Christ has already done the most wonderful thing of all for all of us. You know, that night, after the performance finished and there was the curtain call, the loudest and the longest applause of the entire performance was for the little boy. 
Not unlike a shepherd who can tell the difference between sheep and goats. The audience that night easily recognized the one in their midst whose heart had been open and eager to follow wherever God might lead. Without a single word, it seems to me that boy proclaimed the truth that we proclaim each year on this day, that Christ is King. Friends, Christ is King. Get up out of your seats. Friends, Christ is King. Let us go out onto that stage of life to do something wonderful. Friends, Christ is King. Let us too trust like that little boy that one day when we too hear the voice of our judge, it will be a voice full of blessing, whispering ever so gently in our ears, yes, indeed, you are the very one I had in mind. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.